Welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. I'm Jeremy Gilbert. I'm here as usual with my friends Nadia Idle. Hello. And Keir Milburn. Hello. And today, almost inevitably, we are talking about UFOs. So, Keir, this is your fault. Explain yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, uh, of course we have to talk about UFOs because this is a podcast about the weird left and UFOs are having a moment. I also want to talk about it because it was a childhood interest of mine. You know, I grew up in a period when you would be interested in UFOs and that would be linked to like paranormal. UFOs, Loch Ness Monster and ghosts and ESP. All of that business, yeah. yeah. But I'm also interested in it because I think there's something really interesting in that expansion of UFO beliefs which cross over into that of interest of ours, which is the cosmic right. I think it's a way into the cosmic right, which could be an interesting thing to to, to revisit at this moment. Uh, there is also another reason, I think, which is perhaps there's a, there's a little bit of like escapism and lightness in this topic in, in a moment, which is pretty heavy uh, in, the, in the wider world. Yeah, right. Quite so. So Nadia, why have you even consented to this triviality? <laughs> um, uh, I don't think it's a triviality. I'm just... I am just not interested, I have to say. So I'm here for the ride. I don't think I've ever had an interest in space. I think I said this in the space episode. I just feel like there's too many exciting slash horrific things happening on Earth that are kind of taking my attention to to worry about what's happening out out of space. But I have recently watched a a couple of documentaries on uh, UFOs, and it got me thinking about the relationship between groups of people having a, a sort of belief and how that relates to the the state and what the state tries to do about it when a community somewhere says we think this thing is unexplained and then the st- how the, the what the state's interest is in in reacting to that so that that's one reason why but but mostly I'm here for the ride for the ride on the spaceship on the spaceship absolutely let's see if she's a believer by the end of the show <laughs> Miss dear listeners. yeah let's see what, what about you Jeremy well, uh, like Keir, I was really interested in this as a kid, and uh, and I agree. I concede the point that as a weird left podcast, then we have to do it. The weird left, this phrase, I think was originally coined by Matt Full, friend of the show, who also coined the term acid Corbynism, therefore basically invented us. Um, <laughs> and that ufology is central to weird culture which is one of our topics but i also feel i have to say as a professional cultural studies scholar i feel like it is a subject i just i have to think about a bit because it's a huge part of contemporary culture you know the belief in ufos or the disbelief in ufos or discourse on ufos so it is all really it is important stuff but before we get into that topic let me remind you listeners that if you enjoy the show, you can go even weirder and even leftier by subscribing to our email newsletter, which we'll be sound- sending out with every new trip. That's every new main episode once a month. Uh, no more than that. Uh, with bonus content and updates from all of us at ACFM. Uh, to sign up, you just go to navara.media slash ACFM newsletter. Conversely, for more music and less chat, you can follow the ever-expanding ACFM playlist on Spotify. Just search for ACFM there. 
And uh, do keep in mind that there are ways you can support the show. Uh, that absolutely the easiest way to support the show is just to leave a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening on and as many platforms as possible. It essentially, leave five-star reviews are what determine algorithmically how many other people get to learn that we exist. So that's a really easy way you can support the show and help it grow if you want to do that. More materially, you can support us by supporting our hosts, Novara Media, one of the most important radical left media platforms in the English-speaking world, uh, for as little as £1 a month by going to novara.media slash support. And uh, I really hope people will do that. It's a crucial thing for us to keep supporting independent and progressive media. Uh, so with those notices out of the way, let's get on with the show we should play the Purple People Eater by Sheb Woolley from 1958. What you might call a, a novelty song with the lines, I said, Mr. Purple People Eater, what's your line? He said, eating purple people and it sure is fine, but that's not the reason I came to your land. I, I want to get a job in a rock and roll band. And that, dear listeners, is the secret <laughs> to aliens. <laughs> Well, I saw the thing coming out of the sky It had a one long horn and one big eye Like a mister shaking in the city It looks like a purple people eater to me It was a one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater One-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater A one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater Sure looks strange to me One-eyed Yeah, well, we should probably start on why there's there's been a renewed interest in them recently, like interest in UFOs and explained flying objects, which are now often called unidentified anomalous phenomena, UAPs. It comes and goes, interest. It comes in waves, and we're in the middle of a really big wave now. And that wave probably goes back to like 2017, when a series of videos taken from US aircraft, mainly US military aircraft, they sort of circulated online and then US government released them publicly basically in 2017. So that sparked a sort of interest. In 2022, the US Congress opened its first public hearings into UFOs for like the first one for 50 years. And then sort of just after that, there was a wave of, if you remember the um, Chinese weather balloon that flew across the, the Pacific uh, was seen as either a UFO or a spy balloon or something like that. It was just a, an errant Chinese weather balloon. Uh, that then caused whoever runs the radar for the for the US Aeronautics Association, I don't know. Basically, the people who, who man the radars, they lowered the level upon which something would be detected. So you have to sort of, you know, you're only going to detect things which are above a certain level, otherwise you just detect every bird in the sky and it would be useless. They lowered that a little bit and then suddenly discovered huge amounts of new unidentified flying objects uh, because all of a sudden you could detect more, basically. And so there was a famous thing last summer where like, the US Air Force scrambled and l launched like a billion-pound missile at something that turned out to be a balloon that somebody bought for $50 off, a, off the shelf of a, <laughs> of a supermarket. Uh, so there was that then. And then this summer, you know, just a couple of months ago, there was another sort of hearing in Congress and this... This guy, David Grush, who was a retired Air Force intelligence officer, testified to Congress in a big public hearing about what he claimed to have discovered during his research, basically, which are pretty out there. 
David Grush's testimony is none of it is like things he's seen himself or even even reports he's read himself. But he says he's taught to like people who have either seen these things or read reports which confirm these things. And his job was to investigate this sort of area for U.S. Air Force. Yeah, and the things are, we need to clarify what the things which Grush claims credible sources within the American security agencies have confirmed to him include the fact that the American government is in possession of both crashed alien spacecraft from which they are in the process of extracting advanced technologies and have been for decades, and the bodies of crashed uh, aliens, um, the dead bodies of crashed aliens. How come alien uh, space pilots are so bad at landing? I don't know. <laughs> that's one of the great mysteries. <laughs> yeah, that, that is, that's a good one, actually. So just, just to clarify, in terms of this wave, we're not just talking about Anglo-America, we're actually just talking about America. Is that right? Or was, the, or did, was there a Chinese perspective on this? Well, the Chinese perspective is why they're shooting down our weather balloons. But like, no, I mean, it's one of those things, though. When there's publicity about this, then sightings of UFOs, etc., and experiences with UFOs go up. And that's what's happening at the moment. And, and I, do you know if it goes up globally? Like, does the, the US, does, does like US statements on this affect like people around the world? Or is this an Anglo-America thing? That's a very good question. I don't know the answer to that. I suspect it's I suspect it follows US culture and, and, and how far that, that testimony is spreading. But I don't know. I mean the other thing to say about like David Grush though is that like he has other claims which are aliens have been killing human beings, right? <laughs> some of these alien ships are the size of football fields. These are not like there's some very interesting unexplained sightings. We need to work out what they are. These are like bang in the middle of like absolute the wildest claims mixed up with conspiracy theories, etc. The other thing to note about this, and then we can move on, I think, is he's a retired Air Force intelligence officer, and he's testifying to Congress. So all of these statements have been cleared by the official body that monitors secrets for the US government. So the US government has looked at these and said, these are not secrets, right? There's a couple of interpretations you can put on that. One of them is that, that this is all true, and they don't mind people knowing about this. And in fact, it's never really been a secret that we have secretly found reverse engineering it sounds unlikely to me basically the other explanation is uh, these are all not true and therefore they're not secret or they could be you know actually the u.s government wouldn't mind people talking about this sort of stuff and in fact you know david grush could well be somebody who believes this but like it's not the first time that you've had people who work for the u.s government who are making these sorts of claims basically you know it sort of seems to be a repeated pattern and one of the theories about about the whole phenomenon of ufology is that it's something that's quite handy to the US secret state and it's something that they lean into. And in fact, you know, some people claim that they in fact try to get these sorts of theories going. And you have this reverse thing where people are saying, look, the US government actually has a program in which they are trying to fool ufologists, etc. That's where it gets all tricky, you see, because, <laughs> you know, you can say, oh, well, perhaps these are like this phenomenon is purely an Earth-based phenomenon. But then it's like, how does the government relate to that? Why is the government agreeing for David Grush to testify? And then you get into this hidden secret world in which that just produces its own conspiracy theories and finding firm full footing on all of that is quite difficult. And just to pull back a tiny bit before we get into this, and I know we're going to get into the taxonomy of you know the different aspects of ufology um, later, but like 
just in terms of understanding what we're talking about, are we primarily talking about when it comes to, you know, what you were just mentioning, Keir, state security, all of the theories and conspiracies, are we primarily talking about things in the sky or are we also talking about crash landing and alien people? Because the way that human beings, I would imagine the way that human beings experience that is quite different, is that anthropologically and historically, there could be an argument that's made that human beings have always had a tendency in terms of like the mysteries of life and like ideas around God, that there are these other beings or higher powers in the sky, which perhaps could be, you know, understood within different cultures in different ways, which gives people that tendency towards that belief, which is quite different to having said, you know, I opened my window one day and there was these these flashing lights and this this man knocked on my door, you know, who had like a cone head and was like eight foot or whatever. Is that all part of these kind of stories and narratives or are we most, mostly talking about spaceships? Well, it, it depends who you ask, actually. So people who study this phenomena do make those distinctions. The clearest distinction I've heard made is between stories which are about UFOs proper, like supposed aliens craft presumably from space, maybe from another dimension or something, that don't involve any encounters with aliens. And that might include like supposed sightings of dead alien bodies, you know, being in in the possession of the US military or whatever. And then there's actual like intelligible counter encounters with other beings uh, who might be extraterrestrial and might be from other planets or I think the different the reason for classifying it that way is that well people have always claimed contact with supernatural entities of some kind. There's three aspects of it from that point of view in, in relationship to what you just said, Nadia. Because yeah, it's also true people have pointed up at the sky and said there's stuff there. There's was weird stuff like whether it's the gods or whether it's like just stories about cloud ships. You know, people have thought they saw ships like sailing ships in the sky. There's that. Then there's the fact that people have always claimed to have you know, various relationships with non-human entities. And there's this like very specific phenomenon of UFOs that really starts with the flying saucer scares of the mid-20th century. I mean, that history briefly is around the mid-20th century, you start to get these claims that people are seeing flying saucers, these saucer-shaped flying objects seem to be some super advanced type of flying craft. And I think this this starts during the war and and it's not even initially assumed that they're extraterrestrial. Like it's the fear is that there's some secret weapon being tested by the Nazis or immediately after that by the Soviets. And there's these theories about them coming from the hollow center of the earth where beings might be living that we didn't didn't really know about before. But then quite shortly after that, this lines up with the tradition of be, of fearing that there might be extraterrestrial life, which is hostile. And the idea that flying saucers um, are actually from other planets starts to become quite popular. I mean, again, this is quite complicated because the idea that we might be invaded by uh, alien, hostile aliens starts in the late 19th century with H.G. Wells's novel, The War of the Worlds. But but my understanding of the precise history is the the very first sort of flying saucer sightings in the mid 20th century, people weren't assuming they were extraterrestrial. And then there's this, this I remember that some book gets published in the 40s or early 50s called Flying Saucers Come from Another World. 
And then people become very preoccupied. And then quite shortly after that, you start to hear these stories where people claim to have been actually met aliens who landed in flying saucers and maybe took them into their spaceship and things like this. And lots of people claim to be seeing things in the sky. That, well, that's super interesting because that kind of lines up with what you would think would be happening in the West in terms of like the Enlightenment, this idea that, you know, human beings can, are capable of creating, you know, these different technological innovations. So this idea that in the 19th century, it's like, well, this must be, these must be things created from this world would be like, would, that would line up with that. And then coming into the 20th century, you know, following the wars, etc., or around that time, people thinking, well, perhaps it's 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 from somewhere else, as you know, the 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 belief in the purity of technological advancement perhaps started to crumble. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing, the thing I would really stress, actually, I think it's easy to forget these days. I think you can see a shift in over the course of the 50s, 60s, 70s. Is it's, I mean, it's important to remember now that it wasn't clearly established that there wasn't other organic life as we know it in other planets in our solar system, uh, really until the 70s. So up to that point, it seemed perfectly plausible to people that there might be like civilizations that were only slightly more advanced than ours, who could send spacecraft like between Mars and Earth or Venus and Earth. So it's only in the 70s with the Voyager probes going out into the solar system that it becomes clearly established, oh, actually, no, there's no life out there. So, and at that point, you have to start saying, oh, well, if these things are coming from another planet, they're not like coming from inside our solar system. They're coming from, in, they're crossing interstellar space. And that is much a weirder concept, because as I'm sure we will come back to, I mean, basically, modern physics says you cannot do that. Nothing, nothing can, no, no physical thing, nothing can cross interstellar space. I don't think that's true. I th that's not true. It is true. true. Yeah, can. it is true. Why it's do you, not, it's, it's not, totally not. true. Yeah, it is. It's not. It just you, it just takes time, basically. You can, it can do it over hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah, it can do it over hundreds of thousands of years. But it would take it would take literally hundreds of thousands of years for any physical, not just for a physical object, but for any form of information to cross the space between stars. No, not that long. Yeah, that long. Yeah. How, how no, because the think? nearest the nearest stars is like 30, 30 light years away. So that's like thirty years. Okay, that's 30 years if you can go at light speed. Yeah, yeah that's but that's, that's like information. That's what information travels at. It's not. That's not the speed information. No, information doesn't retain any coherence at that speed. But light does. Yeah, but basically that's how fast, that's how fast you know, some terms of detectability can travel. You could have probes which can just, you know, fly on for, for a long, long time. And, you know, depending on the level of speed you could get up to, you could have generation ships, which are like just like 10 generations or something like that. Only if they can go hundreds of thousands of miles an hour. Yeah, like, like go incredibly, incredibly fast. Let Kia have the dream, Jeremy. Let him have the dream. No, no, no. I just want to, I want to, I want to roll back a little bit because I, it, it is interesting how it relates up to, to sort of like the current level of, of, of scientific understanding because like the H.G. Wells War of the Worlds book was partly inspired by misinterpretations of observations of Mars, basically, where people are looking on Mars and saw lots of straight lines and they, they assumed that there was a canal system, a detailed canal system on Mars, which started the wave of thinking there might be a civilization on, on Mars, etc. But also, let's just roll back slightly as well, because I think there's also, like, when we were making the distinctions between the different sort of phenomena we're talking about, that there probably are three. One of them is, like, sightings. The other one is, like, remains, crash landing remains or, or, or physical remains. 
you could account for those with this idea that like what's been going on since the 50s is that people have been misinterpreting stuff with like secret weapons etc produced by the secret state and then people are misinterpreting that data and the state is leaning into it in order to obfuscate what's going on so like the most famous supposed alien crash landing was at roswell in 1947 and like it's pretty well established that was like a secret balloon which the U.S. government was using to try to monitor uh, rocket launches in in the Soviet Union, and then when it when it crashed, the first person there misinterpreted it as a UFO remain, and uh, the, the the secret state sort of lent into it and said, "Well, that's good. That that will keep people off the trail of what's really going on." So, like, you can see that, like, you know, there are, you could have sort of physical explanations if you want for those sorts of phenomena. But the third phenomena, which is like UFO abduction testimony. That's something else, basically. You either have a paranormal or perhaps a psychological or a psychosocial explanation for those. Do you know what I mean? That leads us somewhere else, I think, that the whole abductions thing. And it relates to a different uh, series of phenomena like ghost sighting, these sorts of things. I think that would be something useful to come back to, I think, because I think we have to reach for different explanations if we're trying to work out what's going on with them. Yeah, and I think there's like a development of an understanding of what the role of the state is and how that works with mediated culture. Because before you have mediated culture in the sense that we have it in the 20th century or whatever, like people didn't perhaps know what the government was up to in such, you know, specific detail. So this idea that there's a gap between what the public are being told and what, you know, the state or the deep state is up to and what interests and power one out of these actions is something that is going to produce all sorts of theories and you know interest from from the public or we'd have to play something by blink 182 <laughs> i don't even know any blink 182 songs i know why. the lead singer tom delong the lead singer of blink 182 is like this really big uh, ufologist basically mm-hmm. and like you know i said in 2017 there were these testimonies etc in congress and stuff like that they, 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 so there are two guys Luis Elizondo and Christopher Mellon, and they were both like ex-Defense Department officials, etc. And they came and testified to all of this UFO, ufology stuff. And then it was discovered they were actually employed by one of Tom DeLong's company called To The Stars, which was then doing a big like share issue about <laughs> to try to get money in order to do UFO research. So anyway, that's why we need to play Aliens Exist. It's Blink-182. In the back room Hope it's not the creatures from above You used to read me stories As if my dreams were boring We all know conspiracies are dumb So there's this book and a documentary actually called Mirage Men, so the book's written by Mark Pilkington. And that's one of the more coherent arguments that says, like, basically what's going on is that basically there are misidentifications. In the the 60s and 70s in particular, there were, like, new religious movements were sort of, like, latching onto these misidentifications, these ideas of UFOs. And then the secret state has been really leaning into it. And, in fact, Mark Pilkington claims that, like, there are organised attempts to, like, obfuscate this stuff to to, uh, uh, enhance and boost up ufology communities and these sorts of things and even to like you know do really quite horrendous manipulation of people to convince them that that ufos exist etc and that they should keep going with their investigations that sort of stuff yeah the the argument here is that the motivation for the secret state to do that are multiple like on the one hand 
it goes back to attempts to just hide the fact that radar-proved stealth technologies were being developed in uh, aeronautics, in military aeronautics. And then it also includes the idea that basically trying to convince people that UFOs are real was a useful sort of test exercise in psyops, psychological operations and propaganda in the 50s, 60s, 70s. At a time when we do know, it is now a matter of record, that the CIA was completely off the leash in terms of both black ops all over the world of various kinds, including like trying to convince people that communists were Satanists and this sort of in Indonesia and this sort of thing. Well, and like dosing people with LSD, etc. We should go back. Very important moment in the counterculture. Various mind control and, and psychology and collective and individual psychology experiments. So it's totally plausible. So basically just for a laugh, you know, they would see if they can convince people in various towns or villages that they've met, they've seen aliens and stuff. And also from a deterrence perspective, they like the they might well like the idea of convincing the Soviets or now the Chinese that, uh, yeah, yeah, we've got some secret alien technology, so you should be extra scared of us. Or even just they like the idea that like the, the Soviet, the, the, the Chinese these days would be sort of trying to interpret that and thinking actually perhaps they just have got what exactly advanced technology have they got, even if it's not derived from UFOs? Do you know what I mean? What are they yeah, trying creating to that anxiety. Yeah, just creating a, a confusion and uncertainty. And there's also the argument, which I think is perfectly plausible, given how evil those things are, that like sections just of the, of the military hardware industry globally have had it in their heads for decades, that sooner or later, like the, the UN and the, the general global distaste for war would limit, potentially limit their profits. And so what... But if they could convince people that there was a, an, a, an interstellar space threat that they had to defend the Earth from, then they'd be laughing forever. So that's also totally plausible, I think. You know, I was always kind of interested in, in and curious about, you know, UFOs ever since I was a kid, like we said. But I remember the first time I ever saw a picture of an actual stealth bomber, a plane that's been designed to make it very hard to be detectable by radar. It has this really kind of flat structure, a really flat shape, almost like a saucer, you know, especially from a distance, because because that's the easiest way to make it hard to detect by radar. I remember the first time I saw a picture of one of those sometime in the 90s, it just immediately felt like a penny dropping, just thinking, oh, that... Oh, yeah, that's obvious. It's perfect. They were researching that like 30 years ago and they didn't want people to know about it. That's obvious. That's obviously what flying saucers were. So it seems really plausible to me. Let's hear, inevitably, a track by Sun Ra and his Myth Science Orchestra, or whatever name they're using that week. I think it is that, that name on this recording. This was recorded actually in 1960, but I don't think it was released till 67. It appears on the album Interstellar Lowways, and it is called Interplanetary Music. Interplanetary, interplanetary, interplanetary music. Interplanetary, interplanetary. I mean, the other thing to think about about what's different about this wave of ufo interest is basically like i said these are the first congressional hearings on ufos for like 50 years and like partly what's gone on is that there are 
Well, let's put it frankly, there are a load of far-right nutbags in Congress who basically are receptive to this. They want this. They're very, very enthusiastic to get these, find these people and get them to testify in Congress, basically. And there's something interesting going on there. But why? Why is there such a crossover, in fact, between wanting to believe these sorts of things or at least to express these sorts of ideas and magarism, you know, the, the contemporary American far right, which is like, as we know, is like tied up with denialism. And there are members of Congress who are like, who have at least expressed the idea that they are full on QAnon believers. And like one idea for that, I think, is this idea that there have been UFO crash landings, alien bodies and the government, not just the government, but what we might call the deep state is covering it up. Like that really fits with the contemporary far right worldview in the US that there is a deep state as Trump went on and on and on about who are covering up deep secrets basically and in a way ufology bit is like a trivial bit in some sorts of ways but it's that thing of like well if they're covering up UFOs what else could they be covering up that is partly why this current ufology uh, explosion has a different flavor I think to previous ones and why it opens up under stuff like the cosmic right linking what exactly what you were saying Q, the cosmic right the other thing that's going on here is the purity of narrative which is very appealing to people who are finding their lives unexplained because it's very difficult for people to understand uh, like the structures of how late capitalism and you know imperialism or whatever work so the fact that this the ufo story fits in quite well with all of the conspiracy theories of there is someone a specific person or you know and they look like this or these people look like this and it's because of them that our lives are shit that kind of conspiracy theory framework or you know the architecture of the argument ufo's sl- slots into that quite easily it's also i would say it's part of a kind of anti-science discourse because yeah. yes I, I was i was just saying a few minutes ago you know Contemporary physics says faster than light travel is not possible. You might be able to get a, something that could travel just under the speed of light, but it would even if to be able to do that on the basis of all currently known physics, it would physics it would require so much energy that it would. I'm exaggerating slightly, but it would like it would exhaust the power of the sun to to do it. So it's just highly. So the consensus among astrophysicists right now is that it's just extremely unlikely, even if there are advanced civilizations all over the galaxy that they're actually capable of communicating with each other i'm not saying it's totally impossible but it's extremely unlikely based on currently understood physics and a whole part of contemporary right-wing discourse is the rejection of science you know it's rejection of climate science rejection of virology and immunology because we're just at a point i mean that is one of the real conditions of our present moment which we do talk about on the show but i think is really interesting to focus on and I feel like a lot of the current commentary even like within my own field on things like conspiracy theory doesn't quite we're not quite getting to grips with this I think partly because you know the sort of critical tradition over the past 30-40 years has been one which has wanted to emphasize the extent to which science is kind of problematic it's, it's socially constructed it's biased by institutional economic pressures all of which is totally true But it is also, at the same time, it is true that, look, we're at a point in history where just the scientific facts of climate change have pretty much rendered unsustainable some of the basic political arguments of both conservatism and liberalism. The arguments they used to have as to, like, why socialism 
couldn't really work. We're based on this sort of cost-benefit analysis, this idea that, well, yeah, you could do socialism, but it would require so much authoritarianism that it would limit people's individual freedoms too much. Therefore, it was a bad idea. Or from a conservative perspective, you could do socialism, but you know, it, actually any attempt to really radically change society is always, always just messes up and leads to totalitarianism and terror. Therefore, you should never really try to do that. And like both of those arguments are blown out of the water by the simple scientific fact of climate change. The conservative sceptical position on the possibility of radical reform now just amounts to a total nihilism to just say, right, we're just all going to die. That's it. It's over. Human civilization, nothing you can do to fix that. And the liberal argument, well, you just, I'm sorry, no, it's no longer the case. Whatever costs you may think would be imposed upon people's individual freedom by some form of socialism. No sane person could say that those costs are less than the cost being created by climate change, by run and uncontrolled consumer capitalism. So, and so, in that context, the right becomes increasingly, I think, anti-science. You has to be anti-science in general. It has to just it has to reject the authority of science as a form of knowledge and truth telling because you just can't render scientific current scientific knowledge consistent with either conservatism or liberalism. I mean, it's interesting, we're talking about it from the right, but it's all, got, we've always got to say this when we talk about the cosmic right, and it is a point we make on the show loads, that the post-neoliberal centre is also completely out of its mind with its complete unreason at the moment. It might not be taking the form of like believing in UFOs, but you know, believing that Jeremy Corbyn is a racist is in its way just as wacky an idea. Russia done Brexit. Yeah, Russia did Brexit, exactly. The belief that Russia did Brexit, the Russia did Trump, you know, bot the bots are out there. Underneath all of this, I think, is is like climate change and the fact that um, you know, when confronted with the hard scientific fact based on one of the biggest research projects in well, the biggest research project in human history, with like this huge consensus on findings, you either accept that and follow that logic through, or you have to basically deny that. And I do think that like neoliberal centrism and the right basically have decided that they're going to deny that at the different degrees and, and with different modes of doing that. But that does seem to be the but the fact and that and in some ways, I think that does explain a lot of the contemporary phenomenon of like, well, I'm going to be perfectly honest, like basically a new alignment between the neoliberal center and their far right, basically, like all of a sudden. There's more in common between those two. They're like a, a sort of binary that wants to be in in contact with each other so they can share a basic worldview and then dispute certain parts of it. And so that's why you see this like incredible turn to authoritarianism in this country for for no other. The, the attempt to like redraw a line, cordon sanitaire, which used to be the far right cannot be part of mainstream discourse. They're trying to draw it where the far left or just the left is outside of mainstream discourse and should be excluded they should not be allowed to protest their view should be uh, you know expression of their view should be should qualify you for censor or even to lose your job etc etc or even to go to prison these sorts of things and like there is a certain hysteria there sort of like you know a hysteria to do with the fact that you know unless you're prepared to give up on all notions which derive from liberalism not just economic liberalism, I mean, you know, the, the tradition of liberalism and political theories. If you're going to give up on all of that, then you get, you're left, you're drawn towards left-wing conclusions at the moment, I think. I think there's also been, you know, going back to Jeremy's 
point about like why we don't have a, a, a proper explanation for understanding like why there's an appeal for these conspiracy theories is I think Jeremy's point about this issue of like science being aligned to global capital and you know like the pharma the, the big pharma etc and what I've seen as perhaps this is lessening now but a trend on the left towards like cultural relativity and identity politics and away from materialism which I think is bad also means that that's also might be an explanation for why there hasn't been enough of an investment in understanding like why it is that people move away from a scientific under- and a materialist understanding of things. We could play The Season Is Ours, a track from the self-titled first album by British sort of post shoegaze band Flying Saucer Attack. So we should play Colin Occupants of Interplanetary Space by The Carpenters, a strange addition to their uh, easy listening repertoire, a fantastic song, which appears on the album under the tagline, uh, the recognised anthem of World Contact Day. I was apparently inspired by the idea of having a day to, to anticipate first contact with the aliens. And transmit thought energy far beyond the norm You close your eyes, you concentrate Together that's the way To send the message we declare world contact I want to talk about this book by Susan Lepselter called The Resonance of Unseen Things, Poetics, Power, Captivity and UFOs in American Uncanny. It's an ethnography. So like, you know, she went and lived with believer communities, in particular UFO abductee believer communities. She went and lived with them, interviewed them, etc. That's That's what an ethnography is. And it's like a pretty generous one as well, you know. She's it's not she's not like going out there to to dismiss their experiences, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's called the, the resonance of unseen things, and I, and it's got the word American uncanny in it because like her, her, her analysis of it begins with this idea that like all of the people she interviews have got have had like really really traumatic lives, just that didn't it? traumatic lives as in poverty, abuse, these sorts of things, which are unfortunately not rare. She has this thing that, like, that trauma produces something which is much more widespread, which is a feeling that, like, there's something not right about the world. You know, there's a gap between the official story about what the world's like and then their own experiences of that world, if you know what I mean. She says, like, that that produces this sort of, like, free-floating sense of anxiety, which needs some sort of expression. Brings us back to some of the discussions we've had about cosmic right. Her analysis is that, like, Within those communities, what they try to do is like they try to cultivate apophenia. So we talked about apophenia before, which is the the tendency to to see meaningful patterns in abstract data. And so 
seeing faces in clouds or shapes in clouds is one of those, right? We, our brains are producing those because we find it enjoyable or something that they don't exist in those clouds. These communities are trying to look for like these resonances, these uncanny resonances. The communities, they build up a way of seeing the world which builds on like a more ambient sense of spirituality, I think. It goes like this, I think, this argument. If you take like the, the underlying feeling of spirituality is that everything is connected, then the practice is to cultivate into yourself the ability to see those connections or to feel those connections, in fact. So that's the resonance. Oh, yeah, these things sort of resonate together. I feel as though they're connected. I'm going to feel it before I think it. And when I do my research, basically that's the search for confirmation bias, which is something we all do. And like contemporary algorithms or platforms are basically machines for producing confirmation bias. That's what they do. They give you what the algorithms think you already want because... That confirmation bias is something we enjoy and that will keep us on the platforms longer and they'll make more money. Like They're the machines for producing this. That accelerates this more general tendency towards confirmation bias. So that's the research part of it, basically. And there's something there, right, about apophenia. Sorry, I'm on one now, but let me just follow this through. <laughs> that sort of like ambient sense of spirituality is really, really like widespread. And that sense of like just trying to cultivate this idea that things are connected and I'm going to prove it, like that can be a positive thing. That can like be the thing that breaks us out of like hard fetishisms, is that that that, that, that we have discrete individual entities which are unchanging in some sort of way. That's something that needs to be broken. The problem with this is if you just remain at apophenia and then do the confirmation bias research, you can't get that stepping back to criticality to understand how your experiences are structured do you know what i mean it, so there's a there's this emphasis or this valuing of like raw experience above anything else a raw feeling above everything else but if you just affirm that and don't have a, like a step back to, a, to criticality then you can't understand how the structures of neoliberalism the institutions we interact with how they structure those experiences they condition those experiences do you know what i mean you're, you're there trying to do this I want to be open to the world, and you end up falling back on these hard, limited subjectivities that are produced by by neoliberalism. And then with the cosmic right, you know, underneath the neoliberal subjectivities are hierarchical orderings of of, of human society, racism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, basically, so you start up with trying to be this openness to the world, you end up reinforcing the most harsh and uh, limited forms of understanding humanity. Oh yeah, that's nice. A nice rant for me there. Yeah, no, 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 no. That was a good argument. But there's there's just a little thing I want to interject with, which is, you know, the reality of it's there's also a evolutionary and a biological tendency towards pareidolia, what I think is called pareidolia, which is this phenomenon that you see a human face or you see like a structure that you are familiar with in inanimate objects. So like it's not a surprise that when that you that the interpretation of like otherworldly beings are seen in a in a that have faces in a way like this is like it's it's an evolutionary thing for humans to to to, to put faces on things. I've never heard a paradox here. Is that like a, to see human faces, or is that like to attribute human intention? It's the visual thing where you see two dots. It's like the the, the classic is a Picasso. It's like you see faces in Picasso where he's suggesting a face to you. If you break it down, you don't necessarily see that. But then, you know, like the, the classical, like British culture joke example is like Jesus in the toast. Is like, you know, you see Jesus's face in the, in the, in the toast or whatever. It's like, 
There's trees. There's trees in the forest. Or trees that, places, and you, and you well. can see, and you can see it's because human beings have a bias towards like putting like certain geographical, like sorry, geometrical dots together or forms together as a face. So it's not a surprise that you look up to the sky and you say, "Oh, that looks like a human form or a human face." Like that's what our brain does. Which is which is separate to like the bigger argument which you're making here, which is that you know like these are narratives and these are like forms of understanding which exist for 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 other reasons. So are we saying that UFOs are just a completely non-existent phenomenon? They're a completely illusory phenomenon, have no reality outside a set of fictionalizing discourses and, mis- and misleading untruths. Because I sort of think my feeling about it is, yeah, I am basically. You know, I basically don't believe that there are alien spacecraft traveling between solar systems. I sort of buy the modern scientific argument that that's just not physically possible. And that's why the reason there is no clear evidence for the existence of alien life is because even if it is out there, it's just not something that life becomes capable of doing. It's like traveling between stars or sending information between stars. To me, that's just like the simplest explanation of where we're at. But there's something going on with the phenomenon, like the really persistent phenomenon of people claiming like alien contact. And there's something, there's some continuity between people claiming contact with aliens that, um, and, you know, animistic beliefs or belief in spirits or DMT users thinking they're talking to the machine elves or Mother Ayahuasca or whatever. To me, there's always, there's something going on in all that zone of experience, which, I, I'm not willing to say, oh yeah, that stuff's it's real in the way that the table I'm sitting at is real, but also it there's too much consistency to it. There are too many patterns to it, even amongst people who haven't really had any contact with each other. For me, just to say, well, that's just a completely kind of individualized, n- mythical, Im- imaginary phenomenon. And there's something about the nature of consciousness, I think, and about the ways in which you know elements of consciousness or elements of perception are, are shared between people in ways that an individualistic account of human experience doesn't really allow for, that I think are, are sort of being expressed here. You know, Jung, Carl Gustav Jung, like one of his most famous, most interesting books is a book about the flying saucer phenomenon and this idea that somehow it's an expression of the collective un- unconscious. When we were researching the show, like I was, one of the things I was really thinking about was the ways in which these these ex, explanations, as we've already said, actually explanations for this phenomenon, which don't want to just say, well, it's all just a government, it's just the security services messing with people, or it's people having sleep paralysis and thinking they've been abducted by aliens or whatever, have really sort of shifted over time, partly based on how they interact with you know prevailing scientific paradigms. So. Like when we were kids, it was much more common for people to, to to basically think that at some point in the future we might there might be faster than light space travel. It was a trope in loads of science fiction, but I would argue it's just because you know Einstein's model of relativity hadn't had anything like the level of experimental verification it's had subsequently with things like the Large Hadron Collider, which now make it seem very very unlikely that there's ever going to be a scientific paradigm which like reverses some of its ba- those basic assumptions about you know how fast things can go in the in the universe and so it's become more and more the case these days my understanding the people who sort of don't think that it's just completely mythological they think something is going on with our, our entities of some kind contacting people then 
they come up with quite different sorts of explanations, which seem less completely disallowed by the standard model of physics. So there's a big resurgence, I think, in people saying, oh, actually, these are like multi they're beings from a parallel dimension, and they're basically the same beings that people used to call fairies. Are what on are what are aliens and fitting it into those kind of narratives, which you know go back into like Celtic mythology about the other world, the the, the parallel universe in which the, the spirits and fairies and gods live. And so that's a much more popular narrative these days. That oh well, actually they're fairies. They're not like um they're not aliens from another planet. The most interesting ex- thing I saw when we were doing research for this show is I watched some Netflix documentary about people who believe that. UFOs are manifestations of the consciousnesses of hyper-evolved like extraterrestrial beings, but they're not traveling in spaceships. They're just able to project their consciousness through space and time, which and somehow that's what they're doing. And somehow UFOs are just some sort of manifestation of that. And it featured these communities of people who actually think that basically by sitting around and meditating a lot, you can sort of call the UFOs, you can uh, get to see them, you don't necessarily talk to them, you just see some shiny lights in the sky, but it's like them kind of waving back at you. Uh, presumably these hyper-evolved beings kind of experienced human meditators sending out thought waves to them a bit just like we would experience some little you know like a squirrel begging for a nut or something they're just sort of waving at us and i'm not saying i believe this but i'm saying it's interesting to me because actually on the basis of current science that was like the most plausible explanation i came across precisely because consciousness is actually it's like one of the great mysteries of contemporary science and philosophy like nobody really knows how it works or what it does or what its limitations are so there isn't really any sort of scientific basis on which you can say well it's definitely impossible to project consciousness in some way like across space and time faster than the speed of light because we just don't know what it is at all it's it's a mysterious phenomenon I thought that was a really interesting example of how the, the the explanations that people are coming up with for this phenomenon are always related to current uh, scientific paradigms, but all, uh, also like one of the big things which trying to think about these sorts of phenomena and all kinds of paranormal phenomena to some extent. One of the things it always points towards is the whole question of the nature of consciousness and well, what is it like? How is it? You know, to what extent is is consciousness a function of? the individual self to what extent is it actually a function of some sort of some process which involves everything that exists in the universe interacting with everything else in ways that we only barely understand and which might produce all kinds of weird things which seem to be like glitches in the system if you don't really understand them and might produce consequences like people actually having an experience of contacting aliens in a way which isn't exactly real but isn't exactly isn't just like a dream or a hallucination either. I don't know. I, I sort of my intuition is it's sort of something like that. These these experiences people seem to have that there's something in between, like just a real normal experience and a pure hallucination. I think we should play Subterranean Homesick Alien by Radiohead, which is arguably, you know, a stream of consciousness story about the life of a human being who's ready to give up their boring life, in a sense, and dreams about being abducted by aliens. But also there's a deeper meaning to it, which is, you know, it's said it's a metaphorical lens about, you know, alienation in modern society and being disconnected from the lived environment. The breath of the morning, I keep forgetting the 
I don't like patronizing people, you know, and there's all of these different accounts of, you know, groups of people in various different places believing that there's that or saying that they've had some kind of encounter with with aliens or whatever. But as you were asking the question, Jeremy, of like, are we saying that aliens and, you know, UFOs or whatever don't exist? And the problem is, is that I can't care enough. Like I, I don't yeah. feel like I care enough. I don't care to form to form an opinion, to spend time thinking about it. But then as you were speaking, I thought actually I do care and I do resent aliens. And the reason why I resent aliens is because of the theory that it's the aliens that built the pyramids, oh, which yeah. are, you know, as an Egyptian, <laughs> you know, it's it's extremely Anglo-American Eurocentric that the Egyptians could not have possibly built the amazing structures that were the pyramids. So I think what's going on with me is that I I don't care. But the reason why I tell myself I don't care is that I just resent that whole world because of like the the whole aliens built the thing in the majority world kind of culture. That whole uh, ancient alien thing is quite interesting, isn't it? <laughs> Let's go through that as a historical phenomenon. Why don't you, you talk about that, Keir? Well, I mean, you know, basically, uh, what I know it from like the 1970s when Eric von Daniken wrote, wrote, I probably wrote in the 70s, but I remember I used to read these comics based on his theories, basically. Oh, really? <laughs> I yeah, never yeah. saw those. He famously published a book called Chariots of the Gods. That's the one. Something may have come out first in the early 60s, but late 60s rather i'm not sure but it really per- became really a big bestseller in the early 70s but his his theory and you see it now that like there's, it's recycled in a- ancient alien documentaries on the history channel i say documentaries and i'm doing my uh, <laughs> fingers of course but um, <laughs> but it's um and like so his 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 sort of idea was you'd look around at, at like um the remains of ancient civilizations and there'd be evidence that aliens had, had visited and intervened, basically. And so there'd be a carving on one of the pyramids in Angkor Wat in, in Cambodia, etc., which would look a little bit like a, a 1950s spaceman. <laughs> Six, sorry. Did they say that about Stonehenge? I know. I, yeah, no, well, no, I, no. Yeah, yeah, no. They, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they, no, totally. They totally uh, right, have okay. said about Stonehenge. Right. Yeah, yeah. They said that why... Why are stone circles circles? Because they were landing sites for for flying saucers. I mean, that's a fucking good argument, actually. But yeah. no, one yeah. of his famous ones was um, was the 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 patterns. What are they called where people walk uh, walk patterns? The Nazca the, lines in Peru. The Nazca lines, yeah. yeah. So you can only see them in, fr- from from up Nazca, in space. Yeah. So the assumption was that they must have been produced by four people who were flying, or by by people who had flown. They're these. Stupid um, people from uh, from uh, South America wouldn't been able to work out the basic geometry of doing this, etc. Well, there's this colonialist version of that ancient aliens theory, which I which is awful, which is you know tied up with this assumption that somehow these ancient peoples who were brown skinned couldn't possibly have created great monuments, which nobody really takes seriously. Now, I mean, I would say to be fair, at a certain point in the history of our scientific understanding, it's not a mad idea that like ancient peoples who worshipped like these pantheons of gods 
who seem to be like basically they had all these incredible powers but they mostly just seem to be like you know assholes a lot of the time they're not like really divine beings like the the greek gods or something that it's not a totally mad idea that oh well maybe actually they were having contact with with people from other planets who came in spacecraft and were had much more advanced civilizations and much more advanced technology that in itself isn't a totally mad idea and until you dig into it a lot more and find that well actually there's zero evidence for it and where are they now then these uh these people so and that was part of the idea of chariot to the gods as a kid i was really taken with chariot the idea of chariot to gods and it wasn't really it wasn't the idea that the aliens built the pyramids it was the idea that oh those stories about like zeus and hera and apollo they're really stories about um about advanced space travelers, which is an idea, which is also, I mean, I think it's there in, in things like some Star Trek episodes and, and stuff as well, actually, that as an idea. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, it's totally wrong, but it, I, I just think it's an interesting example of a, of a theory which now seems completely bonkers. But at a certain point in the evolution of our both archaeological and scientific understanding, you can see why people might have thought, oh, yeah, that, that makes sense. But yeah, it totally got tied up also with this notion that somehow people seem to have had forms of technology which which yeah it didn't fit with a certain kind of white western imaginary that they should have had access to the reverse of the like the racist sneering they could never have invented this is actually these civilizations had access to really advanced technology and they had knowledge that we couldn't hope to uh, we couldn't hope to achieve which is of course why the Aztecs were right, and the world did end in <laughs> The Mayans, the Mayans, who said the world was going to end Sorry. in 2012. Now that's racism <laughs> for you. <laughs> Graham Hancock, the, he's the current exponent of a kind of ancient civilization pseudo-theory who's like really hated by all the uh, proper archaeologists because of the amount of attention and he gets and documentaries he gets to make. And his theory is that there was this super-advanced global civilization that preceded all the currently known civilizations it's not like a racist theory he doesn't claim they were white like ancestors of the Aryan race and he doesn't claim i think that they were aliens but that is a theme that recurs every time there's a new wave of archaeological discoveries and people realize that people were building quite advanced cities like several thousand years previously to what people had earlier thought and it really freaks people out and they've got to reconfigure their idea of history i never as an as you know i take an interest in that stuff but as an outsider to archaeology i never really understand why it's such a big deal i mean surely it's not surprising that you dig deeper every year and you're going to find new stuff that you didn't find before and the 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 more buried stuff is going to be older and sometimes it's going to be like you know more impressive than you were expecting but i think that is just the standard view in archaeology to be fair but there's, there's something about the way people respond to kind of a reconfiguration of their assumptions about the history of technology and the history of so-called civilizations that produces these really extreme theories i suppose the attraction of that is basically there's a way out of like this impasse that we're in now do you know what i mean if there, there, there are in fact past civilization who had access to incredible technologies if they if if aliens really are visiting us and can and can save us etc then that's a way out of the the situation we're in without having to deal with it politically do you know what I mean? yeah well that's a really good point yeah because of course we've been so we've been we've got onto this whole issue well what is the ontological status of the aliens and ufos because they real which i am really interested in and it was me going on about that but of course let's say it's you know it's a given that 
the vast majority of like cultural discourse on UFOs, aliens, etc., is just pure fiction. It is fictional discourse, but that fictional discourse is always expressing like real cultural anxieties. The great alien invasion narrative is kind of invented by H.G. Wells, the great British scientific author. I did a bit of research on this, and I think there was one book that came out like a year or two before War of the Worlds by some other writer that also had the idea of an alien invasion in it. But it was just like written from the point of view of the aliens who were just like a couple of spies hanging around in London or something. It didn't really describe the kind of the aliens coming to Earth and attacking people and taking over. And it's H.G. Wells who really creates this whole image of the alien space fleet coming to Earth, taking over, invading. And it's a really obvious, I think he himself, I think, would have acknowledged, like it was a pretty obvious expression of the sort of anxiety that people were experiencing in places like Britain at the time. Partly the fear of invasion from Germany was like absolutely rife in British culture at the time in the years leading up to World War One, but also the, the growing sense of colonial guilt and the fear that, well, what if some superior, technologically superior race were to do to us what we have done uh, to the you know the non-white people of the world? And that idea of the alien invasion, you know, it persists like all you know persists and persists and persists, and it's a it's a pretty obvious expression of a certain kind of colonial imaginary. The assumption that it's basically natural and normal. If a technologically superior people encounter encounters a technologically inferior people, what they're going to do is enslave them. I remember Stephen Hawking. I remember Stephen Hawking just a couple of years before he died, giving out about how uh, we should be trying to hide our presence from alien species because they'll all they're going to do is enslave us, and that's because his reading of the history of colonialism was somehow that it's built into the nature of intelligent life. That's what it's going to do. It's pretty grim, but then. Parallel to that is the is the has been always the historic assumption that well if if there are beings who are sufficiently technologically advanced to, to travel the dark reaches of interstellar space then they must also be socially and morally and ethically superior to us so the, and the idea that they're the ones who are going to save us they're going to save us from nuclear war they're going to save us from climate change they're going to save us from capitalism that's a really that's also like a really persistent theme. Yeah, there, there has been sort of like waves of ho- aliens are hostile and going to kill us, and then aliens are peaceful and beneficent in some sort of way. Well, those things way. are totally coexisting. As I, 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 was, I was wondering about this. I was trying to work out if it goes in waves or if it's sort of parallel, and I think it's, at least now, it's quite parallel, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you've, you've got exactly, we've talked about on the show already, we've talked about two examples of people who were, people really, really believed basically the X-Files version of history that, the government agencies are secretly in communication with aliens and they all want to eat us and on the other hand no the the alien the ufos are just the expressions of angelic interstellar super beings who are just just are just waiting for us to be as good at meditating as they are Uh, so like yeah if you look at like ufo fiction or films that you know the day the earth stood still oh god 1951 something like that that is the idea, which is a common one, actually, because what the first wave of like UFO enthusiasm goes along with the space race, or actually it predates the space race, but you know it goes along with intercontinental ballistic missiles, etc., and the you know Nagasaki and Hiroshima, the nuclear bombs. Then, so the story of the day the Earth stood still is that you know aliens had spotted that we developed nuclear power, so now they have to intervene. And so they they come down and land, and then the soldiers attack and shoot 
Gort, I think. Oh, it's Gort the robot. No, Gort's a human who comes down. Um, but he says, you know, unless you um, all get together and decide to get rid of nuclear weapons, we're going to destroy the Earth. And to demonstrate his their power, the, the robot, Klaatu, stops the world, basically, stops the Earth, etc. Planes fall out of the sky and these sorts of things. So that's that idea that, like, basically there are there are beneficent aliens out there. And, in fact, they treat the Earth as almost like a zoo, where that, that we're not going to go through and interfere. More like a nature reserve than a zoo. Yeah, nature reserve, and it, that they would only interfere when it got to the stage where they might be a threat to other people. So perhaps, you know, the first inklings of going out into space on nuclear weapons. Are they going to come save us from climate change? Hopefully, well, I yeah, mean, hopefully. Yeah. And then what about talk so talk about the Posadists, because that for us that's absolutely core territory. I'm building up to the Posadists because <laughs> that's turning this theory yeah. up to eleven, isn't it? That, isn't it? <laughs> All right, well you've mentioned it. Now, yeah, I mean, you know, you've got to talk about the Posadists, basically. Uh, if you're talking about this, which is so J. Posadas, I don't know what the J stands for. I think he was always just known as J. Posadas, basically. He was like a fairly major Trotskyist leader in Latin America, like from Argentina. Juan, Juan Posadas. Thank you. Thank you for Googling. <laughs> <laughs> and um, that, like in the early days of the Soviet Union, and in fact, before the Soviet Union, there was this thing, Cosmism. We talked about this when we talked about space. In fact, yeah, I interviewed... Um, Fred Sharman about his book Space Forces, and he talks a lot about this early cosmism and this theorist called Bogdanov around the early days of, of, of the Soviet Union. There was like all sorts of fiction about um, a communist civilization on Mars, etc. All these sorts of things, and real interest in like you know the Soviet Union being technologically advanced and therefore would go out into space, and then that reoccurs in like a very strange way in like the nineteen sixties, basically with this Argentinian leader. And like, so the Posadism was like international sort of organization, like really authoritarian, very much a cult of personality, quite a lot like a cult generally, basically. There were like some people involved in that who were very interested in UFOs. And then Posadas does this speech in 1968, which later gets published as I'll read it out. Flying sources, the process of matter and energy, science, the revolutionary and working class struggle and the socialist future of mankind. So that's the title. You can imagine it'll be a dense, thick <laughs> text. But it's basically like the history of civilization has to go through stages. Then you reach the highest stage, which is communism, etc. And the energy in that bit is that capitalism is stuck. It's stuck with fossil fuels. There we are, climate change, fossil fuels, and then like human labor, the exploitation of human labor. We have to supersede capitalism. And so he makes this speech where he says, Posadas, this is, interstellar civilizations, a civilization which could travel across between the stars would have would be have to be able to access all the energy trapped in matter. So he's extrapolating from like, you know, the discovery of nuclear energy, etc. And like in order to get to that level, you must have the social unity of communism. That's the sort of general idea, is that we should take this seriously and we should we should see that as partly like people's belief in it is a desire to supersede capitalism. But also, he seemed to actually believe it as well, because he also refers in that speech to, like, not alien abductions, but close encounters with aliens, basically. And at the time, his interpretation was, these are all peaceful and ben and beneficial aliens who want who are non-aggressive, so they must be communists, etc. So basically, that was like this, this moment in 1968. There's been a revival 
of interest in it over the last, I don't know, 10 years. I've got a book by A.A. Gitlitz, I want to believe, which is about Posadism. It's become a sort of like humorous reference, like or a meme, etc. People identify with it ironically, which is ironic because Posadist was against humor. He thought that jokes would disappear under communism <laughs> because all contradictions would be annulled. And now he is the joke. <laughs> There's a line in the Woody Allen film, Stardust Memories, where a character, a guy walks up to Woody Allen and says, I can prove that if they're, in, if they're um, alien civilizations, they will have a Marxist economy. I don't think we played before Pink Floyd's Interstellar Overdrive, their instrumental anthem from their early days, playing long instrumental jams at the UFO Club in London. I would like to come back to this interstellar travel. (laughs) I do believe, I want to believe in interstellar travel. Where are they then? Um, Well, I have (laughs) highest problem. Here's here's one thing people often date. Just let's think about this for a moment, all right? When people first started believing that flying saucers, UFOs, might be spacecraft coming from within or outside the solar system, okay, there was almost no capacity for observing space outside our atmosphere apart from just with traditional telescopes on earth now now if something was coming from another place to earth from outside there are tens of thousands of observing instruments that would see it but we that doesn't happen we don't we don't see these things coming and entering the atmosphere yeah i mean that that is a a good point but of course they've got very good stealth technology jeremy (laughs) i think jeremy's making the point that that these are subterranean aliens yeah exactly they're obviously fairies rather they're obviously from the realm of fairies Fucking fairies. <laughs> I am an interstellar believer. Go on, go on then. Um, let me, let me mobilize my, my evidence. Your quick, quick... Fa- fairies are just not very, fairies are just not very masculine. So they have to have the sci-fi version of fairies, which is aliens. <laughs> yeah. 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 Hard fairies. <laughs> no, I'm talking about traditional pre-modern fairies who were hard, who were tough and sexy. Yeah. <laughs> the, <Okay>. best, <laughs> the best sort of mythologies um no let me mar- ar- ar- marshal my scientific arguments which comes from an, a fictional novel i read recently by uh, kim stanley robinson called aurora but kim stanley robinson is like a sort of like hard cipher he's the one who's who famously like his most famous books apart from the one he wrote about climate change recently kim stanley robinson's series about the colonization of mars is Absolutely fantastic. You've got to read those. He studied with Jameson. He's like, you know, very theoretically sophisticated and he's a a good Marxist, etc. Anyway, in repudiation of this idea that we should conquer Mars, he wrote this book about a generation ship which goes to Tau Ceti. He says that it would take 170 years, 160 years for this ship to travel to Tau Ceti, which is another star, if that ship was traveling at 0.1 
percent of the, the speed of light and he has this thing where they've there's a huge sail which gets a which gets lasers, huge lasers on it which accelerates this, this is why you're committed to this being true because kim stanley robinson said it in a in a book yes i've read a very convincing <laughs> fictional novel I'm, I'm not i'm not saying this is fucking watertight i'm just uh, bringing it in there but no the other way to get into that would be like you know where are they is the question of like fermi's paradox basically so Fermi was this this physicist and they were asking about at a conference lunch and he sort of said, well, you know, hang on, where are all the aliens, etc." You know, and it's this idea that like a detectable civilization has emerged on the earth, although at that point it had probably been detectable via radio waves and TV uh, waves being beamed out, probably only detectable for like 40, 50 years or something since the first radio waves. So basically that's not gone very far. That's like 50 light years or whatever. But before that, there's this idea that is there alien life on other planets? And I think that's the thing that really gets people is that like, surely if it arose on the Earth, then it must uh, it must arise elsewhere. Yeah, I think we've got to spell out more clearly what is the paradox. The paradox, the paradox is there are so many stars in the galaxy that logically, scientifically, there must be enough that can support life and enough of those that can support life that have produced intelligent life that there must be other intelligent civilizations in the galaxy, yet we have had no firm evidence of their existence. We haven't detected signals coming out from other planets that are definitely artificially produced, and, and we haven't had any contact with them. So, what? And that is the paradox that the, the um, Keir is now explaining. Yeah, and there's, so there's various explanations for that. One of them is like the rare Earth thing, which is perhaps it's just incredibly rare for life to get to the stage where it can be detectable in an interstellar level. The Earth has been incredibly stable partly because the proto-moon planet crashed into the Earth and the, the, the moon was created out of the remains, et cetera, et cetera, and kept Earth in a very stable place. It, perhaps when we look at planets now, it's quite rare actually to have rocky planets in the position where the Earth is, where you can have liquid water. In fact, quite often it seems to be like you have really large planets there and it's likely that Earth developed in a different part of the solar system, was moved in towards the sun. All of these things increases the less likeliness of life emerging. But there are just so many stars and so many planets that that must happen again. Do you know what I mean? Well, there's also, and also, I mean, one of the popular argue, popular answers to Fermi's paradox is the self-destruction paradox, that actually civilizations will destroy themselves before they become capable of interstellar travel of any kind that that's a popular one yes we have plenty we have plenty of evidence that, that might well be a possibility just going on the one detectable civilization we know i mean i think i've already explained my attitude to femi's paradox is it's a, it's a non-paradox which is handy for pop filling on time on podcasts because it's not so that sounds nasty to you kia i didn't mean it to at all because i wanted to talk about it as well totally because it. it's only a paradox if you assume that interstellar travel is possible, that it is achievable eventually by by detectable civilizations. If you just say, no, it's not, it's not achievable. There are some things which are not scientifically achievable, and that's one of them. Then, then the whole thing just isn't a paradox. There's a lot of kind of speculative fiction which like take which kind of self-consciously resists these sort of colonialist assumptions and just suggests that, well, actually, probably what happens when civilizations reach a certain level is they they don't like spend loads of energy like traveling out into the solar system of the galaxy they just kind of they render their populations and their habits like manageable and just spend their lives having a good time on their planet that's an interesting thing about the posadist assumptions because that, that 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 whole thing was based on this assumption that like the drive of humanity is to maximize the amount of energy that you can access 
And so from that, you that he sort of intuits this idea of UFOs, etc. You know, that there is this supra historical drive for uh, amongst humanity to maximize energy use. What I will give you, Jeremy, is so the popular imagination of aliens being able to visit the Earth and then go home, etc. Like that, that's basically that that doesn't work. Basically, I think interstellar travel is theoretically possible, but like basically that doesn't mean that there are aliens. That would mean that you know the amount of stars and planets that they could come from and even with like incredible technology traveling at the speed of light etc is still incredibly small it's like it's one of those things where people can understand very large numbers are very large but like getting your hand on the distances involved and also like deep time basically so yeah there could well have been alien civilizations why would they be around in this particular 50 years we've been looking at for them do you know what i mean is there any commentary out there on like aliens and dinosaurs Mm. No, but I think there will be soon. <laughs> this. It, was an, it was a UFO crash that actually killed the dinosaurs. Yes, come on, let's go for that. The birds, their classic uh, country rock jingly anthem, Hey Mr. Spaceman, would you please take me along for a ride, goes the chorus. Hey Mr. Spaceman, won't you please take me along? Alien abduction testimonies. They are testimonies that people have had close encounters with aliens or have been taken away with aliens by aliens. Particularly in the 90s, there were people who were being probed by aliens. And the common sort of trope of the testimony is like paralysis. It's that you felt paralyzed, you couldn't move, and the aliens were doing things to you. You know, like the most obvious explanation for that is to sort of say that's to do with like this idea of sleep paralysis, you know, that state between dream and wake where you feel as though you can't move. <clears throat> that's an explanation that people go to for lots of like ghost phenomena, etc. There's all sorts of phenomena. The woman at the end of the bed is one of these things that goes in waves that like you, you feel trapped and it's sort of either an evil witch or a woman who's sort of just staring at you at the end of the bed. Why is it a woman? It's just one of those tropes basically that, that emerge. Presumably like witchy sort of stuff. I'm not quite I'm not quite sure. Basically you can just analyze it on that thing and say, oh yeah, it's probably people falling asleep in their cars in the US countryside somewhere and like you know but i think it's more interesting to think about it in like a social psychological sort of idea and that's one of the things that this the resonance of unseen things book by susan lepselter she's really interested in this like well look if, if it is this common narrative of like paralysis and then abduction by aliens and aliens doing things to you like like what's going on there why is that the thing that people go to why is it aliens and not the witch at the end of the bed etc her sort of interpretation of that is relates to this sort of trauma thing of like, you know, there's something there about paralysis relates to this sense of trauma and the sense of like a lack of agency in your life, the, the lack of being able to do something. That's what makes that sort of explanation or that sort of feeling really, really meaningful to certain people, if you know what I mean. There's like some sort of parallel to a, a more socioeconomic or social cycle sense of paralysis, if you know what I mean. Or it could be, you know, 
the DMT elves. I'm open to all explanations. It is one of those phenomena like ghosts, really, where it sort of feel like we don't have the categories for, for even saying, like, in what sense these things are real or not real. Because I do take seriously the fact that one of the things that gave the abduction phenomenon legs in the 80s and 90s was highly trained like psychologists and psychiatrists treating people who who claimed deduction experiences assuming that what they were dealing with was trauma symptoms of some kind and just in some cases coming to the conclusion that no the like in, in whatever sense they were able to verify these people were just talking about a literal experience that had happened to them it's the same with ghosts it's just like it's such a ubiquitous thing and so sort of trans-historical in some ways that well, there's something going on even if it's just some sort of neurological phenomenon there's something going on that current paradigms don't really properly have a handle on and i mean it might just be neurological i remember hearing some podcast or some show about this and somebody was talking to someone who'd worked just as a had worked in elder care you know they just worked with loads of um old people who were suffering various kinds of neurological degeneracy or dysfunction and and they said they they had so many symptoms that were basically like seeing ghosts or talking to aliens or something that they they lost any belief they'd ever had in any sort of paranormal phenomenon because it just seemed to be that all paranormal phenomena seemed to be matching these neurological symptoms but then there might be some ways in which they might be non-pathological neurological phenomena that we don't really understand that they're not just the things that happen to people, not just be, there are the experiences people have that can't simply be traced to some sort of pathology, that there's some part of the normal functioning of human consciousness, like collectively or individually. I think that's sort of, that is sort of what I think about that stuff, actually. And I feel completely dissatisfied with all the explanations presented for it, whether they're just purely psychologizing or whether they're purely medical or whether they're purely believing like they all seem to not quite get to something and my my deep suspicion is that you can only understand them by understanding that consciousness is itself in terms which are totally non-individualistic understanding that well there are these aspects of the human experience which are shared in ways which just can't be captured by our normal way of thinking about ourselves as isolated individuals and it's something at the the blurry gaps in between, you know, the, we normally think of ourselves as these isolated individuals, these islands of experience. And we know, like theoretically, philosophically, politically, even from a lot of contemporary science, we know that's wrong. But we don't, as we say, I was saying on the show all the time, like we don't really have a great language or a great way of talking about the fact that that's wrong, that actually our experience of, the, of ourselves is always an experience of the world. And I sort of think there's, there's all this kind of bleed at the edges of, of so-called individual experience, you know, and it might just be the ways in which we can influence each other and get excited by, about things together. And it might be the ways in which some people have an experience of the world that includes alien abduction experiences, which are very similar to each other for no apparent reason. I was trying to say something like that earlier. I think it's like, that's why we should be interested in this stuff. I think it's partly because that sense that something's out of joint or that the way we think about the world is not sufficient and that like openness to re-enchantment we've talked about this in or enchantment in, in, in this sort of way this idea that like we're not just discrete individuals etc and there is everything is connected in that sort of way you know it is something that is politically useful basically and also just seems basically true and, and in accordance at least to a certain degree in accordance with like current scientific understandings etc 
But the other th- reason I think we should be interested in these sorts of experiences and the sort of communities that build up around them is this sense that like there's some sort of like deep hidden structure to the world that you can only glimpse in these like out the corner of your eye. Do you know what I mean? In these these uh, isolated experiences, somebody's been abducted or these sorts of things. And that idea that like there's deep structures that you can't see directly and you can only sort of see by non-continuous occurrences that's pretty fucking close to the structure of critical thinking do you know what i mean where you're trying to interpret these sorts of things my point i was trying to make earlier and i think it's an important one is that like you know basically that that sense of that like there's something there's something wrong there's something that doesn't fit there's a there's a deep structure and like you know somebody's hiding it from us or perhaps things have been obscured from us those are the beginnings of like moving to a to a sort of left analysis of the world. Do you know what I mean? But the problem is, you know, unless you break with this ontology of like we're discrete individuals, etc., and we are isolated from other, you know, unless you break from that in in a but stronger way than you do with just a vague sense of like things are connected, then you fall back and reinforce it, which is I think what's going on with the with the far right. If you can't break from this ontology that the world is just made up of discrete individuals then your explanation for phenomenon and for this sense that there are deep structures is basically world governments, conspiracies by individuals. or And you'll even like supplement that with the idea that there are, let's add omniscient aliens in rather than to like do the harder, harder thinking of like how structures... Or it's the hysteria of the contemporary liberal. Yeah, yeah. This is what I think. It's easier to imagine omnipotent aliens than it is to grasp the structures of capitalism. <laughs> Stick that in your zizek. <laughs> so where are we landing? What on are we saying? Where are yeah, we landing are we on UFOs? I, I, I'm landing <laughs> on the perspective that the acid... Co- it's clearly, clearly the acid communist position on UFOs is any sufficiently advanced civilization will have zero interest in going out in traveling like for hundreds of years across space it'll manage its own planet to be habitable and enjoyable and everybody probably will spend hours a day meditating and tripping therefore might well be able to protect their consciousnesses out across the across the known universe to shine little lights at uh, of hope at um less advanced people that's self-evidently the the position <laughs> the, the, the most likely future for us and the most likely explanation this is acid, man.